Greetings, church. Good morning. Hi, my name is Marvin, and our reading is from the Old Testament. We'll be reading from chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. Answer not the fool according to his folly. Least ye be like him yourself. Answer fool according to his folly. Least ye be wise in his own eyes. Words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Hi, my name's Casey Converse. The New Testament reading is found in Colossians uh, chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Keep on praying and guard your prayers with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us also. Pray that God would open a door for the word so we can preach the secret plan of Christ, which is why I'm in chains. Pray that I might be able to make it as clear as I ought to when I preach. Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Your speech should be always gracious and sprinkled with insight so that you may know how to respond to every person. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Jill. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew 26, 36 through 41. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask now that by your Holy Spirit you would breathe your word into our hearts, that the entrance of your word would bring light and life, that we would be transformed into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. My name is Glenn Packiam. I'm the pastor here at New Life Downtown, and it's great. Uh, to see all of you today. This morning, we're talking about prayer and presence in the world. Should the church be a praying church, or should the church be a church that is present in the world? And before we open up the, the text and read it again and look at it closely this morning, I wanted to show you a picture of one of my favorite places on earth. This is, these are the ruins of a monastery in the northeast of England, it's called Holy Island. Its technical name is actually Lindisfarne. Uh, but, but Lindisfarne, or Holy Island, has been called the cradle of English Christianity, the place where English Christianity came to a birth and, and spread uh, throughout the country. And, and it's a remarkable thing to call this place the cradle of English Christianity because to get out to it requires some work. It's one of those islands where there's a road to it, but the road is covered by the high tides. 
And so you have to time your visit out there. You got to go out there in the morning and you got to get off the island if you want to get off the island by about two o'clock or so, or else you'll be spending the night there. Uh, the island itself doesn't flood, just the road. And, uh, but, but in the 600s, a man named Aidan came and planted a church there. And the church is now called St. Mary's Church. It was planted in the 600s. And, and then Aidan became the bishop of this area. And he also uh, built a monastery. And this is the monastery that he built. And it looks out over uh, the, the coast. And when Aidan died, on the night that Aidan died, there was a 17-year-old boy, a shepherd boy, tending to his flocks by night. It seems like we've heard a story like this before. And this 17-year-old boy named Cuthbert is, is watching his, his flocks, doesn't really know what's happening over there in the monastery or the church or whatever. And he sees this vision of angels kind of carrying up like a glowing orb up into the heavens. And he, he, he thinks that maybe this is the soul of a holy person or the spirit of a holy person that has just died and is going to be with Jesus. And he's not sure all that's taken place. And the next day he discovers that actually Bishop Aidan died last night. And so then he realizes, wait a minute, I was being given a vision of, of this man's transition from earth to heaven and, and realizes that this is how God is beginning to call him into a life of prayer and service. And so Cuthbert then enrolls in the monastery, becomes a monk there, does so, starts learning the languages and, and all of this stuff, and then becomes um, in charge over the whole monastery. But he's not sure about all these advancements that are happening. And so Cuthbert retreats to another island because this island is not uh, remote enough. And he finds a, a more remote place and just wants to hide out there. And then the church decides that he needs to be bishop. And so they come and find him in hiding and say, Cuthbert, we need you to be the bishop. And you can just imagine this sort of slightly grumpy middle-aged guy saying, no, I don't want to deal with people and the work of the Lord. I just want to pray. And they're like, no, Cuthbert, you're the bishop. He's like, Durr. so he comes out, he becomes the bishop, takes over the monastery, and it becomes this amazing thing. And actually what you discover is that they didn't choose this location um, on, on Lindisfarne because of its remoteness. They chose it because of its access. Uh, see, to us, we think about water as being a barrier, but in the 600s, water was actually like sort of living by a superhighway. And so by being located on the waters, they could go up and down the coastline. They could even go onto the continent. And so it was actually from this monastery that preachers of the gospel were raised up and spread throughout England and even into parts of Europe. That's why it's called the cradle of English Christianity. And then the, the most remarkable thing happened actually after Cuthbert died. In his honor, the monks decide that they are going to make a beautiful version of the Gospels. And so, of course, you know, in the 600s, prior to the printing press, there's not like, it's not like copies of the Bible abound, right? There's only very few copies of this. And so they decide they're going to write these elaborate a script, and, and they, they build in special dyes and jewels in the covers, all of this stuff, and it, it's called the Lindisfarne Gospels. To this day, you can find it in the, in the Royal British Museum because, not only because of its, uh, you know, importance to the Christian story or church history, but also because of its importance in literary history. Do you know why? The Lindisfarne Gospels were, were copied not simply in Latin, but actually had text that was in early medieval English. 600 years, no, longer than that, 
A thousand years before the King James Bible, you have the first copy being translated in this language, kind of the precursor of translation work of the scriptures. On our communion table, some wonderful people in our congregation sewed together this cross. That is called St. Cuthbert's Cross. And the reason why it's, it's up there is because Cuthbert was eventually moved, his remains were eventually moved to a little town in the northeast of England called Durham. And they built another monastery there, which then became the great cathedral. And out of that became a university where I went and studied over the last few years. And so it, in, on graduation day, walking through Durham Cathedral, knowing that Cuthbert's legacy is kind of filling that place, I had to go with our family and see the monastery where he presided. And I show you all of this, not just because it's a cool story and I like the monastery and Cuthbert's cool and we've got his cross on our communion table, although that is all marvelous. But I share all that with you because I think this helps us name the two things that we try to hold in tension. Should we be people of prayer or should we be people of presence in the world? Should we be disengaged and, and devoted to God or should we be active in the work of the Lord? You could almost tell from the stories about Cuthbert that he himself was conflicted about this. Leave me alone. I don't want to be a bishop. Okay, fine. I'll be a bishop, you know, and all of this. And you think, yeah, this is exactly what we feel. At the end of Paul's letter to the Christians in Colossae, he's addressing them one final time. This is his charge to them. Now, this little town of Colossae is also in a remote area, in a way. It's, it's kind of in the overlooked part of the, of the region. It's not where all the action is. That's happening in, to the north of Laodicea and Hierapolis. And Colossae is sort of overlooked. And Paul says, look, you small group of Christians that I've never even met, a church that I didn't plant, but one of my associates did. I want to give you one final charge. And my charge to you is to be both a praying church and a present church. I want to say to you, you don't have to choose between prayer and presence. You don't have to choose between being, being with the Lord and being in the world. That you can actually do both. And so when he opens up his, his final charge to them, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, he says, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. These words that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Now back up to that earlier verse in verse three. It just jumps off the screen to me when he says, pray also for us. And you know why that stands out to me? Because Paul, how did Paul open his letter? He opened by saying, I am praying for you. And he says, I, I always give thanks for you when I pray for you. And then verse 9 of Colossians 1, he says, I haven't ceased to pray for you since I heard about your faith. And now, as the bookend, as it were, of his letter, Paul says, would you pray also for us? I don't want you to just think that prayer is the work of professionals. I want you to know that prayer is the calling of the people of God. And so the first thing we want to say from this text is that Paul is calling the church to be a praying church. Don't just be a, a church that occasionally prays, be a praying church, a church that has devoted itself to prayer. And so Paul now says, look, everything I've said to you about how I'm a person of prayer, really, I want you to be a people of prayer. I want you to be a praying church. 
And I want to point out a couple more things about his language there. He says, continue steadfastly. If you've got the text open, you can keep following along as we make a few remarks about this. But he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. You notice that when Paul's talking about prayer, he doesn't say, pray spontaneously. You know, like pray when you feel it. Pray when the Spirit moves you. Pray when you're feeling like it's been an especially good week. No, he says, I don't, I'm not interested in you praying spontaneously. I'm interested in you praying steadfastly. Pray on the good days. Pray on the bad days. Pray when the sun's shining and you're happy. And pray when you're just miserable about your life and your work. Pray, pray, pray. Devote yourself to it. Amen. It's interesting because as evangelicals, we call our morning prayer time, what do we call it? We call it devotions. But this is, I think, where we get the idea from, where Paul says, make this something you are devoted to. I love the long-standing practice of Christians has been structured times of prayer. And so you have morning prayer, and you have afternoon prayer, and you have evening prayer. And throughout church history, you'll see how actually the church got more laxed about their, their rhythms. Early Christians would sometimes pray the entire book of Psalms in a day. There's some of those letters that we have that say, yeah, we prayed through the whole book of Psalms for a day, and then it kind of relaxed a little bit, and then they would pray the entire 150 Psalms in a week. And then it was like, okay, we can do it in a month. And now we're like, I don't know, maybe like in a year, right? But the point is there are, there have always been, Christians have always known that the only way to devote yourself to prayer is to have it built into your rhythm. Build it into your practice. Make it part of your life. Don't, don't leave it up for chance. Don't leave it up to say, well, should I or should I not? I mean, it's sort of like in the morning, like, should I brush my teeth today? Yeah, I think this is a toothbrushing day, you know? It's like, no, it's just what I do. I get up and I brush my teeth. Why? Because I don't want to get lectured by the dentist. No, it's because you want good, healthy teeth, right? And in, the, in a similar way, Paul says, be the kind of people that just, this is your devotion to God. Continue steadfastly in prayer. But the other thing is, he says, being watchful in it and with thanksgiving. I like both of those words because prayer keeps us watchful and thankful. Prayer keeps us both watchful and thankful. And I think both of those things are important. Think, think about the word watchful. You, you think of our gospel reading this morning where Jesus says, um, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. Stay alert, stay awake, watch what's happening, be alert. You know, in, in our social media world, there's a, you know, the movement about being woke, you know, hashtag woke. And like any social media movement, there's some like really valid points, and then there's some really squirrely bits, you know? And, uh, and, and, and you just, uh, but let me just say, as Christians, the end goal is not simply to be woke. The end goal is to be prayerful. And so you could be watchful about all that's happening in the world, but if you're not prayerful, you will become cynical. So you're like, oh, I, I watch everything. I, I watch 24-7 news. I keep my eyes. I am so watchful. But you're never prayerful. And so your watchfulness turns into cynicism and anger and outrage. That's not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is to watch and pray. Watch and pray. Be alert and pray. And that prayer will keep you thankful. It'll keep you from being cynical. There are so many things that your watchfulness could turn into cynicism, 
But with prayer, it becomes thankfulness. Because now you're not just watching for what's wrong with the world, but you're also watching for God at work in the world. Now you're saying, God, I see signs. Oh, look at that. I think that's the Lord working. Look at God at work in my life this way and in my church and in my business. And And all of a sudden, your prayerfulness keeps you watchful and thankful. Okay, what are we to pray for? So be a praying church. Well, what does Paul tell us to pray for? Let's look at some of these phrases that Paul says. Verse five, uh, sorry, verse three, he says, at the same time, pray for us also that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Do you catch the irony here of Paul saying, pray for an open door even while I'm behind a locked prison door, right? And so the first thing Paul tells us to pray for is pray for open doors, Pray for open doors. I'm looking around the room, and I know many of you have had a background or, or currently are working for different missions organizations. You've spent time overseas. Those who have lived overseas particularly are, are the ones, I think, who understand how important it is praying for open doors. Because you know how sometimes how narrow that moment is, and you think in a country where, where there's not freedom or where Christians are not the religious majority, you know you're saying, pray for us because we need this little inroad here. We need this partnership to work out. We need favor from the government here. Otherwise, we're going to have to shut down this or that. And you understand we've got to pray. But I want to say to us, actually, even for us here in America, don't get complacent. Don't think that, wow, we got all this stuff here. We got all this. It'll be just fine. What if you, your prayerfulness, led you to pray each day for an open door for the, for the gospel? To be able to say, God, in what way can I have an opening at work today? Is there something I can have an open? Is there some place where I'm able to, to speak of you today? Maybe a conversation with a neighbor. Maybe a walk around the neighborhood. Maybe it's that dreaded seat next to you on the airplane when you don't really want to talk to anyone, you know? That, that's just me. Okay. Pray for open doors. Now notice what Paul says. He says, the mystery of Christ for which I am now in chains. Here's the thing. The gospel will always generate opposition. It will always generate. And I would say to you, if, if Christians become so good at sugarcoating it and, and kind of changing this and changing that, and you see this a lot in some of the liberal streams of Christianity, we're like, oh, let's just change. Oh, we don't have to say this about resurrection, and we don't have to call it sin. And we don't, you, if, you, if you code it in such a nice way that it no longer becomes opposed, it may no longer be the gospel that you're preaching. The gospel will always generate opposition. It should make the idols of consumerism and nationalism and militarism and all of the, all of the anger and outrage and partisanship, it should make all of those idols be on notice. It should make people upset a little bit and say, well, what do you, why, why are you saying that I, I shouldn't just be all about my retirement account? And why are you saying I shouldn't be just all about my, what, what, do, what do you mean by, oh, the gospel will provoke opposition. It will. And so Paul says you have to pray for open doors because it's not like people are going to hear the words repent and think, oh, I love that. <laughs> and it's not like we're going to say to people, that's sin. And they're going to say, I am so uplifted because of that. It is good news, but it does confront us. And so Paul says, you have to pray for, pray for open doors. Pray that, that people's hearts would be ready for this. And then he says in verse 4, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. That I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So pray, secondly, for 
clear words. Open doors and clear words. Paul loves talking about how Christ is this great mystery that God has sort of been working on from the beginning of time. And when the fullness of time, boom, Jesus appeared. And Paul's just like, ah, I love it. It's been sort of kind of kept hidden for a little while, but now it's clear. And so Paul says, the last thing I want to do is make it unclear again. The la- like God's been cooking this up for ages. The last thing I want to do is be like obscure and use jargon and do kind of, Paul's like, just help me make it clear. And when you follow Paul's missionary journeys in the book of Acts, you realize Paul was trying to adopt and adapt in different times. It's like, okay, maybe we'll use this poem here. Maybe we'll use this, this story here. It's always the gospel, but he's always just trying to make it as clear and plain as possible. Now, those of you that work in different contexts, you understand that what's clear in one context is not always what's clear in another. And this is the challenge, you guys, with where every speech is soundbited and broadcast in every moment. And so it's like, oh, he said this thing there. It's like, yeah, but you didn't know the room I was in, right? So, so you, if I'm on a panel at UCCS on an interfaith thing, I'm going to say things a little differently than if I'm in a, in a, in a New Life Church small group, right? But, but we have different, we soundbite everything. And so we, we just think we ought to have the same words every time. Paul's like, I don't know about same words, but pray that I'll have clear words, Pray that in each setting, I'm going to be able to say the right thing in the right moment. And then he goes on. He says, look, this isn't just about our praying for this. We have to also be present in the world. And so verse four and uh, 5 and 6, he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that they may know how you ought to answer each person. So the first thing is be a praying church. The second thing now, Paul says, be a present church. Be there. Show up. And you wonder, you know, earlier in this letter, Paul's warned them about false teachers. And he said, there's these false teachers and they're going to take you into some weird kind of religion, you know, some mix of things and some weird sort of strange spirituality. And, and, and you, you almost wonder if Paul's anticipating what happens to us, what we humans do when we've been given a warning. What happens when you've been given a warning about something? You stay far away, right? Unless you're a different personality type, then you run closer to the line, right? But Paul's thinking, I've just told them, be careful, there's false teachers out there. And he's thinking, oh no, what if they conclude that we should just retreat? And, and, and so, so we sometimes, you know, we think, okay, church, be careful. There's deception out there. And so then Christians over time start to get the message that like, oh, oh, well, we, maybe we shouldn't be in the world. Maybe we should just hang out at our Holy Grounds coffee shop with our Christian t-shirt, having my little testament afterwards, <laughs> listening to my Christian music. I don't want to be in the world. I might get contaminated. And Paul's like, I just want you to know you're supposed to walk with outsiders, but you got to walk with wisdom to the outsiders, right? So how should we be in the world? How are we to be present in the world? Two things. First of all, in verse 5, he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. And so the first thing we want to say is we want to be wise with the world. We want to be wise toward the world. Now, Paul's drawing on a great history here of a wisdom tradition about what wisdom looks like. And he says something in here. He says, use up the time. Literally in Greek, the phrase is buy up the time. Buy it up. Snatch it up. 
In fact, one commentary said, it's kind of like everything's on sale and you've got to get it now. Some of you all know what I'm talking about, right? Now, I don't know if it's, you know, if in a friendship who it is, the, you know, among a friendship group or in a couple. I don't, I'm not going to gender stereotype and say it's the guy or the girl, whatever. But sometimes we have these moments in our marriage, and I won't say who it is, you know. But it's like, I'm just going to go check out this one thing. And then you come back and you're like, wait, wait, why do we have all of the fall candles? Like, why the pumpkin spice and the apple delight and the whatever? Like, why did we need 12 of the? Like, well, they were on and Paul says, have that kind of attitude about time. What's the opportunities you have? I got, we got this one. We've got this chance. I've got this friendship. I've got this relationship. I'm here. I'm here. Lord, help me buy it all up. Help me use it all up. Every moment of this time in the world. But then he says, be, be wise toward them. Be wise toward outsiders. Now, we heard our Old Testament reading this morning is such a classic wisdom literature kind of piece. It's from Proverbs. You remember it? Did you chuckle when you heard it this morning? Because it says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him. And you're like, I know. That's why I'm not on Facebook, right? You're like some of you. And then, and then others. Uh, and then, but then the very next verse, the very next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And you're like, yeah, that's right. That's why I get in those threaded discussions, you know. I don't want them thinking they're wise. I got to show them what's up. Have you seen this link? You know? <laughs> and I love how sort of passive aggressive it is, you know, because people, you know, it, it, people are like, People are like, well, you know, I don't want to be nasty, but hey, just going to put this one out there. And it's like, I know why you're putting it out there. Like, it's not hidden, right? But which is it? And Proverbs, it's so great because Proverbs is not a collection of rules. Proverbs is not the Ten Commandments. It doesn't read like that. If you, if you think the Proverbs are like that, you're going to be really confused. Isn't it great that Proverbs has conflicting instructions and not like in different chapters, but like side by side? Like right there. It's like they're trying to say to you, if you're looking for rules, you've come to the wrong book. Go back to Exodus. Proverbs is a, is a, is a, is a, is a compendium of wisdom, but it's saying to us, you've got to discern what the moment requires. You have to discern what the moment requires. Wisdom requires discernment. Wisdom does not allow you to live life on autopilot and just sort of copy and paste your response to everybody. No, Paul says if you're going to be in the world, be wise about it. Discern what the moment needs. And then he goes on and starts talking about our speech. And he says here in verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, seasoned with salt is not likely a reference to Jesus calling us the salt of the earth. And so to have your speech be seasoned with salt is to throw in little Jesus nuggets, you know? Like every person you meet, you're like, how are you? Oh, I'm so blessed, you know? Uh, I was talking to someone some time ago, and, and, and I said, oh, how are you doing? So I'm having the best day of my life. And I said, wow, I wouldn't say that, but I'm glad that it's going that way for you. And he says, no, 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 it's not because of what's going on. It's because I'm one day closer to Jesus, you know, to seeing Jesus. And I thought, okay, like, uh, well, all right. And that, that's not what it means is to sprinkle in little Jesus-y stuff. That, no. When he says seasoned with salt, it's a well-known, it, more likely, it's a well-known idiom in the, in the ancient world uh, of, of, of salty speech. That doesn't mean crude or vulgar speech, but 
But winsome, yeah, you know, we use it as, oh, he's a little salty, right? But they use salty speech as a way of saying, this guy's witty, this guy's winsome, this person, they're, they're, they're fun to listen to. Listen, belonging to Jesus and having the message of the gospel entrusted to you does not mean you have to be dull. You don't have to be like, well, brother, I mean, I just, uh, just wanted to know, like, if you died tonight, where are you going? You know. <laughs> you can be warm. You can be witty. You can be winsome. Let it have some flavor to it and say, man, how, how are you today? And then he says, so that you may know how to answer each person. Can I tell you that sometimes we focus so much on the answer part that we forget about the each person part. And this is what I mean by that. We memorize stock answers. And then as soon as someone says something, we're like, oh, 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 I studied for this. You're like that, you know, I'm ready for this. And you're like, well, here are the following six evidences for the resurrection of Jesus. And here's the 10 reasons why Christianity is superior. And they're like, oh my goodness. And you're like, I'm just ready. <laughs> I know how to answer each person. I think there's something personal here where Paul's saying each situation is going to require wisdom. Each person is going to require a different kind of answer. So answer each person differently. So be wise toward the world, but secondly, be gracious with your words. I love Alpha so much, and I love that we are a church that runs Alpha because not only because of the way that we're able to welcome uh, people with questions, seekers, cynics, skeptics, whatever, all of that's great. But you know why I also love it? I love it for all of you who have learned to be table hosts at Alpha. Do you know how hard it is for a Christian to listen to a seeker or an unbeliever say something that you know the answer to and then not answer? Do you know how difficult it is for a Christian to sit at the table with someone who goes, well, I don't know about this Jesus stuff. I mean, did he even really live or is it mostly like just legend and stuff, you know? And for a Christian to say, oh, well, tell me why you think that. Tell me more. Versus, oh, well, I studied for this. <laughs> it's so good for us to learn how to listen and to learn how to say, oh, what's the gracious word right here? I mean, what if you prayed that way? Lord, what is the gracious word? right here? What is the, what's the word that has some flavor right now? What's the word that's needed right now? Uh, the people who have encouraged me the most uh, in this are our parents whose adult children have been on a, a difficult journey or a different journey away from faith. And, and I've, I've listened to, to parents tell me their approach and to say, oh, this is what we've done. And this is, you know, we, and I love, love, love when a parent says, we're, we're really just wanting to stay in relationship with them. And we're not, we're not sure about this or that. And we can't convince them. We don't know all these books they're reading. And we, don't, we can't keep up with all this stuff. You know? And I hear this a lot. But, there, but, but a lot of times parents will say, but we just want to stay connected to them right now. We just want to stay close to their hearts. That's a wise and gracious word. That's a wise and gracious word. Just say, you know what? Sometimes it's not about being right. Sometimes it's not about trotting out your argument. Sometimes it's about the wise and gracious word that keeps them close. It keeps the open door for the gospel to do its work. That's what we're looking for. And maybe you, you, you think about the moments in your life and the relationships in your life and you're saying, God, I've been praying for open doors, but actually I'm the one that's closing them. I'm the one that's like, I'm done with this person, blocked, muted, unfriended, unfollowed, you know, or they're doing that to you, you know? And, and, and maybe we say, Lord, I'm praying for open doors, 
Help me to walk through them in a way that is wise and gracious so that the gospel will eventually do its work in their hearts. Amen? Amen. If we were to sum up what Paul's, Paul is saying, what Paul's advice is, he, I think Paul's charge to us is to understand that prayer fuels our presence in the world. If you're not praying, you won't have any reason for wanting to engage with the world. You'll just be like, whatever, man, doing my job, clocking in my, you know, 40 quarters, and then I'm out. Retirement, beach time. But Christians don't live that way. Christians are praying people who then say, how can I be different in the world? Why should I teach another year past retirement? Why should I serve an extra term in the military? Why should I do this? Because I can be a light there. Because there might be open doors there. Because I might be able to be an instrument of the gospel there. And so all of a sudden, our prayer fuels our presence in the world. We don't disengage from business or from politics or from law or from the homes or from neighborhoods or from the military. We don't disengage because we don't want our absence in the world. We want our presence in the world. And prayer fuels that. Prayer leads us to that. And not only does prayer fuel our presence in the world, but our presence in the world is how we embody our prayers. So you can only pray so long before God says, I've got a great idea for how you can live this out. How you might be the answer to someone else's prayer. And you're like, oh, well, I wasn't really thinking about that. So you can see there's this person who's been praying, there's this mother who's been praying for her son. And if you would say yes to this, maybe you're the person that embodies the answer to her prayers. Maybe you can be part of that. I love the lyrics of that old Keith Green song. It says, make my life a prayer to you. I want to do what you want me to. What a posture. What if every morning you woke up and you said that, Lord, as I give myself to you in prayer, Lord, make my very life a prayer to you. I want to do what you want me to do today, Lord. Walking in wisdom. Speaking with grace. Help me, Lord. So I was thinking about this weekend in Colorado Springs. We actually had a marvelous weekend of seeing the church be both a praying church and a present church. We got to see some tangible pictures of that. Uh, yesterday at Mary's home, they broke ground on an extension in Mary's home. Some of you may know this. Mary's home uh, is, a, is a part of the Dream Centers of Colorado Springs, which is an entity that a new life began some years ago and continues to sustain, but it's a separate organization. And Mary's home is an apartment complex for moms and their kids, single moms and their kids who find themselves in transition uh, from housing. A lot of times for many of these women, it's because they're fleeing a domestic uh, violence and unsafe situations and they find themselves homeless. And so Mary's home is an apartment complex that has units for this, but there were two houses next to this apartment complex that were meth houses. And these two homes were torn down because of the meth and all of that stuff. And, and we were able to buy that land and to build something new on it, build something that will be able to expand our services it will be a new community center. There'll be a new kitchen in there where the moms can learn how to cook uh, healthy meals for their kids. Uh, expanded services. It'll even, it, it will even free up some of the apartment units so we'll, we'll be able to say yes to more moms and their kids. And yesterday, they, they began building it. Walls began going up yesterday. In fact, they're doing this in kind of an extreme home makeover kind of thing, minus the trucks and the cameras. But they're going to do it in 10 days. 
And so here's, a, here's another picture, an up-close picture. These guys are working like crazy. I mean, dude's consulting blueprints while putting up walls. I don't know if that's the thing, but, but, but they're trying to go, they're trying to do this quickly. <laughs> and it's a beautiful, beautiful vision that's happening right here because of the church, because of the generosity of builders and others. Also this week was an incredible week called CityServe Weekend because I love you, sort of the merger of those two entities. And on Tuesday night, 200 pastors gathered together at the Pinery up here on the hill, heard from the mayor saying to the pastors, thank you for the way that you mentor kids in schools. Those of you that are serving, Queen Palmer Elementary, Kids Hope, thank you for that. And he said, thank you for the ways that you're present in your neighborhood. And he said, thank you for the ways that we're supporting Springs Rescue Mission. And it was amazing for me to see the mayor specifically applaud the rescue mission, where Larry Yonker, uh, who, who is the president of it, attends here, and where my dad serves as the chaplain of. And to, and to watch them say, this is the stuff that's getting real work done. Almost 400 low-barrier shelter beds are going to be opened this, before winter hits this year. And they're, they're on a major fundraising project to expand the services that they offer and all of that. And so on Friday night, I gathered with 1,500 Christians from a number, dozens of different churches in town. We even had different languages going. It was just an amazing service. Worshiping together, praying together, knowing that the next day people were going to go out and serve. And so in, the, in, that, in that meeting there, they're talking again about ways to continue to give. Now, just so you know, New Life has already set aside money in our budget to give to the Rescue Mission and this project. But, but that doesn't mean you can't give over and above. And so if, if the Lord's stirring something in your heart and say, I want to give extra to this project so they can expand their services and build a bigger kitchen and serve the, the, the homeless community in our city, you can, you can do that. And you can do that directly on, on their websites or you can do it through New, New Life if you want to do it. Whatever you want to do with that, you can continue to support that. But yesterday, over 3,000 Christians went at over 100 different projects all throughout the city of Colorado Springs and began weeding and cleaning buildings and washing windows and picking up trash, serving the city, turning our prayers into presence and letting our presence embody our prayers. This is what it looks like to be the church. Amen? So I want us to watch this video together, this little a two-minute recap of City Serve, and then I'll come up and take us to the table together. But let's watch this. Serving with joy means that you're having fun while you're serving because serving is so fun. Just being a good neighbor. Helping other people. A pink nose and cold fingers. So right now I'm picturing an 11-year-old girl using this bedroom and enjoying it, and that brings me a lot of joy. But our purpose actually is to alert people to the reign of God and to partner with our cities to actually give people a taste of the world which is to come. I'm not only touched by it, but I'm overwhelmed by it in terms of how they've been able to coalesce their forces and really make a positive change for the community. Because I love you is an opportunity to show God's love to the community. It's really all about us serving together and doing something for others. I was having fun like making the bench because it would make some people happy. Joy is felt when we come together as a community like this. Laughter, smiles on people's faces, and uh, just being a part of something bigger than ourselves. Amen. 
As we get ready to come to the table this morning, we come to the table remembering that Jesus did both of these things. Jesus prayed for us. John 17 records that. And Jesus is praying for us. The scriptures say he's seated at the right hand of the Father, lives to make intercession for us. He's praying for us. And Jesus is present to us. In a six weeks or so, we begin the season of Advent when we remember that Christians serve a God who didn't stay distant. Well, he never was distant, but he didn't stay away. But a God who came and was present in a way that no one had ever known or seen or anticipated before. The incarnation, God himself came to dwell with us. So we see in Jesus the praying one and the present one. And every time we come to the table, the church has felt that by the power of the Holy Spirit, when we come with faith in our hearts, Christ is present to us again through the Spirit. And so again and again and again, Christ is praying and Christ is present. How much more we as the body of Christ should we be a people who are praying and present?